and invite you to take your copy of the scripture and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. We'll be looking at Mark chapter 3 this morning. We'll be reading uh, verses 22 through 30, and we'll be focusing especially this morning just on those last few verses, verses 28 through 30, uh, as we spent some time uh, last week uh, thinking about this uh, incredible charge uh, against Jesus by certainly those who should have known better as those who grew up in the scriptures, and yet a charge uh, that Jesus was in league uh, with the evil one, and Jesus, of course, sets him straight. And so we'll read that section again, but then specifically we're going to focus on what uh, happened next. And this is the word of the Lord. Mark 3, verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying of Jesus, He's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons, and he, that's Jesus, called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house, plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man, and then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly. I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. This is uh, the word of the Lord. Let's pray for his help today. Heavenly Father, we thank you that by the Holy Spirit this word was first written down, that every word that we have here we know is breathed out by you, by God himself. Lord, we also know that without that same Holy Spirit working today as we read these words and as this word is preached, we will not... Here we will not see, we will not understand, and we will not believe. And so we pray, dear God, that you would graciously be, uh, even in our midst this morning, uh, at work, in the one who preaches, in all of us who hear, uh, that we might know you better, that we might love you more. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the uh, most wonderful uh, little books on... The uh, mission of the church and evangelism, the call to bring the gospel to the nations, is an old book by J.I. Packer, which uh, many of you perhaps have read. I know I saw it in our, I know I saw it in our church library somewhere. Evangelism uh, and the sovereignty of God, and in that wonderful little book, uh, Packer seeks to encourage believers like us to have confidence in sharing the good news of Jesus. And this is what he writes: Our part is to be faithful in making the gospel known, sure that such labor will never be in vain. This is how the truth of the sovereignty of God's grace bears upon evangelism. It should keep us from being daunted when we find, as we often do, says Packer, that people's first reaction to the gospel is to shrug it off in apathy or even contempt. Such a reaction should not surprise us. 
It is only to be expected from the bond slaves of sin and Satan, nor should it discourage us, for no heart is too hard for the grace of God. Christ, says Packer, has saved you, and that should be enough to convince you that he can save anyone. God can make his truth triumphant to the conversion of the most seemingly hardened unbeliever. You and I will never write off anyone as hopeless and beyond the reach of God if we believe in the sovereignty of his grace. So there's great confidence for Reformed believers. That's part of the reason, one of the reasons why the session established a missions and evangelism team. There's people in our congregation doing missions and evangelism already. But as a, as a church, we want to have always before us uh, the call of God upon us as a church. We want to be looking for opportunities all the time, not just outside the church, but within the church, to bring the gospel to each other. Confident that the Lord uh, will use that gospel in the saving uh, of, his, of his people. Uh, Jack Miller, who wrote the book Evangelism in Your Church, said this, I believe that God has few delights greater than to see his children go out with the gospel, confident of his commitment to evangelism and his promise of a harvest uh, of barn-bursting proportions. And then he says this, Yet we all know that it takes more than a formal knowledge of these things to motivate a believer to share his faith with the lost. Too many of us know horror stories, says Miller, about well-catechized churches which failed woefully in their witness to the unsaved. A pastor from a West Coast town remembers the night a man who had never been to church walked through the doors of a conservative Presbyterian church. The idea of visiting a church had so unnerved the man that he had taken several shots of whiskey to fortify his courage. And when he seated himself in the congregation, the unmistakable odor of drink wafted through the air around him. As his nearest neighbors sniffed in dismay, each one of them silently got up and moved. The man was left, says Miller, sitting in an empty circle. (laughs) No one sat nearer than a dozen feet of him in any direction, the pastor recalled. Understandably, uh, he never returned. Our confidence as Reformed believers is that, of course, no one is beyond the reach of God's sovereign, almighty grace. But if that's true, how can the Bible say, and how can Jesus say, that there is a person who never has forgiveness and is guilty, as he says here in Mark 3, of an eternal sin. When thinking about this uh, passage and Jesus' words in these verses, our initial thought, I think, of course, is how Jesus closes this portion of teaching, is that uh, he ends it, of course, with this urgent warning, and that, that that's the most important part of this, these verses. I don't think so. It's important. Uh, In fact, the heading to this section in the ESV, headings which are not scripture, by the way, is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And so when we go to this passage of scripture, that's usually what we're focusing on. But of course, that's not the only thing that's said in these verses. And I think looking carefully at this passage, the context of what's happening, it's clear that though there's a serious warning here, there is also a glorious promise uh, and invitation Because the section could also be easily entitled, Forgiveness for All Confessed Sin. But we start with the warning. The warning is this, from Jesus. Do not reject 
the work of the Holy Spirit of God. Here again, Jesus from the book of Matthew at this point. But if it is, he said to the crowd there, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons here in Mark 3, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Remember, we talked last time. That's exactly what Jesus uh, has been doing, casting out demons. And so Jesus is saying that the reign and rule of Jesus the King uh, has come and it's being established by God in the person and work of Jesus. God is at work. He's saving people. He's restoring people. He's, he's healing people. And then the scribes have attributed the life and ministry of Jesus to the work of Satan within him. When in fact, the evidence is, it is the work of the Holy Spirit of God. The eternal sin of which Mark speaks and the guilt associated with it describes, says Jesus, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit in what we have just seen in Mark 3. To blaspheme means to speak irreverently of. It means to speak without reverence and awe. It means to speak ill of. Whoever rejects the work of the Holy Spirit and attributes that work to something or someone else, here an evil spirit, um, is guilty of this sin. Literally, we could translate this passage this way uh, in the Greek. Truly, says Jesus, I tell you that all will be forgiven to the sons of men, the sins and the blasphemies, whatever they may blaspheme. But whoever blasphemes against the spirit, holy, has not forgiveness unto the age, but liable is of an eternal sin. Because they said, spirit and unclean he has. And, uh, and if you were listening to the Greek there and how it's all phrased, yes, Yoda from Star Wars would have done well with Greek. He would have loved it. Object before verb Greek has. Uh, he would have loved that. That's how that works. And it's usually for uh, a, point of, a point of emphasis. But Mark here tells us, Jesus tells us very specifically, this warning comes because they were saying. They were going on to say. They were continuing to say. That all that Jesus was doing was not actually of the Spirit of God. It wasn't from God. And in fact, they said it was of the evil one. Now, Jesus makes a distinction in this passage between blasphemies forgiven, verse 28, whatever blasphemies they utter, and unforgivable blasphemy in verse 29. So first of all, as we think about this serious warning of the Lord Jesus, uh, we need to think about what is this warning not about? What is this sin not about? Well, first of all, this is not about breaking the third commandment. You know, the third commandment from Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. There's blasphemy forgiven and there's unforgivable blasphemy. So is this verse talking about when I take the name of the Lord in vain? Is this about the sin of swearing? Is this about taking the holy name of God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit on our lips in any other way than reverently and with a heart of worship? Because that's what the third commandment's all about, as sadly so often we do, outside the church and also sadly inside the church. Oh my! And then we put in the name of the Holy One as an outburst of surprise. Or we use another word that sounds very similar, all the while thinking, well, of course, we're not sinning now. 
but we're, 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 we're using a similar word, giving expression to the same kind of outburst that others use God's name for. Well, that's a sinful use of his name. But, of course, singing a hymn in worship that's full of the names of God while staring out the window or thinking of lunch uh, or being at the ball game or going shopping is just the same. Taking the name of the Lord, Jesus, we praise you. And, and I just got a blank mind. I'm thinking about, you know, driving a motorbike or, or heading off to the diner. That's a sin. Is that an eternal sin? Well, no, it's not. The Apostle Paul describes his former life outside of Christ, you may recall, uh, as himself uh, being a blasphemer. That's who he was. So in 1 Timothy 1, the Apostle Paul is talking about his own life. He says this, I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer. Persecutor and insolent opponent, but I've received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. Oh, that's wonderful. There's forgiveness for someone who who even takes God's name in vain. Well, is it murder? Well, no, it can't be murder. King David was a murderer. Forgiven. Remembered in the New Testament as a man after, after God's own heart. Well, maybe it's suicide. Well, no, it can't be suicide because suicide is simply self-murder. It's still murder. And that is forgivable in the Scripture. Is it abortion? What about someone who, uh, who takes not their own life, but takes the life of a child within the womb? Well, that's murder. Oh, and murder is... Forgivable in the scripture. Um, well, maybe is it denying Jesus? Absolutely. No, I don't want anything. Don't want anything to do with him. Um, in the early days of the church, this is what many believe was that unforgivable sin in the third century. There's a man named Novation. Uh, he uh, he lived during the Decian persecution of the church, uh, and Novation and his followers there in the mid third century. Uh, said that the lapsi, that is, baptized Christians who denied their faith during a time of persecution, uh, could no longer be received into the communion of the church. So if you fail in your testimony for Jesus and you deny him, the novation said, you can't come back. There's no turning back. Donatus said the same thing in the, in the fourth century. They actually had a lot to say about ministers. They said that actually for a minister or a priest to be effective, um, they had to be faultless for their ministry and prayers and sacraments to be effective. And so if you had, uh, if you had lapsed uh, during the persecution of Diocletian in the day of, Don- of Donatism, um, the people were called, uh, Diocletian would say, well, I'm happy that you're a Christian, but, if you, but just to give a token of the fact that you're renouncing your faith, I want you to hand over your Bibles. And so some believers under persecution, under Diocletian, uh, handed over their Bibles. And then later, uh, the church called them traditores. Traitors. Those who had handed over the holy things. And, 
and Donatist and the, uh, those who followed him said, uh, no, you can't come back. There's no more communion for you because you've denied Jesus. I mean, what could be worse? But there is forgiveness for traitors because we have it in the very uh, scripture of God. What greater traitor could there be than Peter? Who, who, when Jesus is, you know, under trial, needs him. Uh, three times, the Bible says, denied him. And the last time, and all the, the Gospels say, he, uh, you, know, you know Jesus, you know Jesus, you know Jesus. And the last time, the Bible says, Peter says, he denied it with an oath. He called down a curse on himself. He swore, I don't know him. That's pretty bad. And... Yet there's forgiveness for Peter. Maybe it's sexual sin. Maybe the unforgivable sin, maybe the eternal sin is, uh, uh, is homosexuality. Maybe that's what the Bible's talking about. You commit that sin and there is just no turning back. No, it's not that either. Because in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, we read this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? We know that. Do not be deceived. Neither, this is true, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, by the way, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. None of those folks, if that's what they're all about, will ever enter the kingdom. And then the Apostle Paul says this, and such, to the church, and such were... Some of you. But you were washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So that's, no, it's not that. It's not that. It's not that. All these sins, the Bible says, there is forgiveness, but the person Jesus describes here never has forgiveness. Why not? Because if you are constantly, as these scribes were doing, they were saying, the end of the passage says, they were saying, it means they were constantly saying. That's just, it was their fixed attitude of heart. It was their settled conviction. If you're constantly rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit, if you're constantly denying that the life and work of Jesus is the glorious revelation of the power of God, establishing his kingdom of righteousness, if you go on insisting that what you read in the Bible about Jesus' life and ministry and miracles and death and resurrection and ascension, work in the church is all nonsense or worse, uh, that it is the work of the evil one to lead you astray, uh, if you go on rejecting Jesus for who he is, and refuse to recognize him and bow before him as the Son of God, clearly revealed on the pages of Scripture, there's no forgiveness for you. That means your sins remain on you. Sins before an infinitely holy, eternal God remain on you. As you reject the clear revelation of Jesus the Savior. Forgiveness uh, is for those who repent and believe in the gospel. That's why this man never has forgiveness. Why? Well, because forgiveness is for those who repent and believe in the gospel. As one has said, their sin is unpardonable because they were unwilling to tread the path uh, that leads to pardon. John describes this sin as the sin that leads to death. 
You have a settled conviction in your heart that Jesus is a liar. His word is not true. That sin leads to death. If that remains with you. And you go on and and you keep on. Even as the scribes were. You cannot deny Jesus, attribute to wickedness, the work of the Holy Spirit, and believe in Jesus at the same time. And so Jesus is warning us here. He's warning us here, friends. Denial and rejection of Jesus, that is, pushing him and his word out of your mind, heart, home, family, as an ongoing pattern of life, pushing him out, leads to a life without forgiveness. For they were saying, And continuing to stay, despite the evidence, despite the call of Jesus to believe, they kept on saying, you know, it was becoming in their heart a settled conviction, a hardening response. He has an unclean spirit. This is not of God. And they kept pushing. To grow up in the church, as the scribes and Pharisees did, And to continue to call good evil. To call evil good. To grow up in a Christian home, surrounded by the truth, hearing the gospel, more than any neighbor might ever hear of Jesus. You hear it right here at Faith Church. Maybe you've heard it for years and years and years and years. But if you're one who has come to this church and, uh, and, and you hear it with your ears, but you've never embraced Jesus in your heart and you're always kind of pushing away, you don't actually believe and you push him away. Jesus is warning here. You can, you can come to the point where you become so hardened to the truth and all the evidence. There's no more forgiveness. Simply because you will not confess your sin. And you do not see yourself in need. Of a Savior. Oh, this is a warning of Jesus. Don't keep rejecting the work of the Spirit of God when the truth of the gospel of Jesus is in your face. And you continue to refuse Him as Savior and Lord. It's a terrible, Jesus says, it's a terrible place to be. Don't do that. Don't reject the work. Friends, this is why preaching of the gospel is not a lesson in history. I don't want to give you a lesson in geography from this pulpit or politics or mathematics. I need to proclaim to your heart and your conscience the truth about Jesus. Will Metzger, in his wonderful book, Tell the Truth, says this, As we touch the conscience, we bring truth alongside people's lives. Ultimately, the acceptance of the gospel is a moral problem. Not an intellectual problem. When people tell me they are atheists, says Metzger, they're not just telling me about the way they think. They also tell me something about the way they live. Jesus accused people of not being willing to come to the light because of hatred in their heart. The light of Christ, says Metzger, exposes their evil deeds, and so they prefer darkness. That's why people don't come to Jesus. It's not that it doesn't make sense. not that there's not enough evidence. Uh, We love our sin. That's why we don't, and we don't want to change, you see. In showing people, says Metzger, their moral guilt, that it's about our heart towards God, 
We're not to leave them in despair nor tell them they're worthless. Hopefully our witness will show them their guilt and need of forgiveness. Not simply their despair and need for an answer. To elicit conviction, which is really a merciful work of the Holy Spirit, is not cruel, but kind. Why? Because we can repent of our guilt, but not of despair. So to see yourself as a sinner, that's a merciful thing. You see that? This is the warning uh, that Jesus gives. Are you worried you've committed this sin? Well, let me ask this another way that's more helpful. How can you know this morning that you haven't committed this sin? By believing in Jesus Christ. That's how you can know. (laughs) By confessing him. Because Jesus tells us this sin, this blasphemy, is saying, continuing to say that Jesus is evil. The only sin which goes unforgiven is the ongoing sin of rejecting the life and work and person of Jesus. Said one, only the man who sets himself against forgiveness is excluded from it. Or wrote another, it's the conscious and deliberate rejection of the saving power and grace of God released through Jesus' word and act. Such a one says Jesus never has don't do that says Jesus don't reject the work of the spirit of God and how do we know this is true because of the glorious invitation which should really be our focus in this passage the charge has been made right against Jesus he's mad or he's evil Jesus refuted the charge no this is the work of the Holy Spirit of God evidence that the kingdom has come and the king is here the warning has come Don't reject what you see in the life and ministry of Jesus because there's no forgiveness for you if you go on rejecting him. And so then this invitation goes out. Verse 28. Truly. I say to you, says Jesus, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they are. Now, we've dealt with the warning. Well, what's this about now? Well, sometimes we say amen at the end of a sentence or when we hear something that we particularly want to affirm. You know, amen, uh, so be it, or uh, that's the truth. Truly, it has the idea of faithfulness. Amen is not a punctuation mark thrown in willy-nilly. Um, it's, it's declaring and affirming this is true. This is a faithful saying. And we use, it at the, we use it at the end of a sentence. In response to someone speaking the truth. Exactly. Jesus used it at the beginning. You say, well, wait a minute. What's he, what's he saying he meant to? Who's, what do you mean this is the truth? No one said anything. And that's because uh, only Jesus, every word he speaks, is a solemn truth. He's the only one who can begin his sentence that way. This is really interesting. It really means I solemnly declare. And did you know this? That um, nowhere else in the Bible uh, or in Jewish literature does anyone, does anyone, Begin their sentence with this word. Only Jesus could say amen before he ever spoke. And what does he say? 
He says, all. He says, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, praise the Lord, we say. All sins forgiven. Whatever blasphemy uttered, actually it could be translated this way, whatever blasphemies they blaspheme, all sins. But you say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You don't know, you, know, you don't know what I've said and what I've done. You don't know. Nobody in this church really knows, you might say to yourself, who I really am or what thoughts run through my head. You know, those desires that plague me and lead me to do things on my phone or computer when I'm alone, when no one can see but God. Pastor, you don't know those things. No, it's true. Nobody else in the church knows those things. That's true. But he does. He does. There was forgiveness, as we said, for Peter, who denied Jesus three times, swearing as he did so. There was forgiveness for David, who carefully plotted adultery and murder. There was forgiveness for Paul, who persecuted Christians and stood by at the murder of Stephen. And forgiveness for all. Of these, We need to remember, friends, the great difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector was not that the one was a greater sinner than the other, but the only difference between them was that one sought for mercy from God. They were both sinners before a holy God. Imagine two people lost in the desert. Uh, dying of thirst. Uh, only the problem is that one of those people in the desert dying of thirst won't admit he's lost. Now, whatever differences those two folks might have in the desert, they might have quite a difference of education. They might have a different skin color. Uh, they might have different experiences of all all kinds. Uh, but it really all kind of all those differences kind of pale in comparison to the reality they share together. That is, they are lost and dying of thirst. So imagine this. They come up to an oasis. These two folks. Oasis of fresh water. One man, one man falls to the ground, drinks his fill. Saved. While the other refuses to drink, denying he's lost and uh, all be I'll be okay. I'll make it. On my own. No. They're both the same. We are all... uh, Everyone, the Bible says, has fallen short of the glory of God. And glorious, merciful, uh, gracious, loving promise of God. All All sin forgiven. When confessed... You see, the Bible tells us in John, John will tell us later in his, in his letter, these words, we say them often in the worship service because we need to remember them often. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, 
Does this sound familiar? If we say we've not sinned, we don't need Jesus as a Savior. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. That's what Mark 3 is talking about. These scribes and everyone else, you're a liar. You're, you're, you're speaking from, from Satan. They're just rejecting the truth. And the Bible says, no, there's, there's forgiveness for all sin. As we confess our sins and our need of the Savior. Wrote R.B. Kuyper in God-centered evangelism. He said, for a compelling reason, the call to repentance must come first in evangelism. Only he who is oppressed by sin will realize his need of the Savior. Only he who knows himself to be guilty and foul will run to Calvary for pardon and cleansing. Some present-day psychiatrists, to the contrary, notwithstanding, conviction of sin is an indispensable prerequisite of faith in Christ. And he said this, there's a great difference between repentance and remorse. When Judas Iscariot had betrayed the Lord, he was overwhelmed by remorse and hanged himself. When Simon Peter had denied the Lord, he wept bitter tears of repentance. The remorseful sinner hastens from Christ. The penitent or the repentant sinner flees, uh, flees to Christ. Who are you today? Are you the one who hears of your sin? From the pulpit or somewhere else and says, oh, I don't need to hear that. The guy behind me does. <laughs> oh, boy. You know, lady in front of me, oh, yeah. She needs to hear that. And you just run away. You don't want to hear those kind of sermons. You don't want to hear about that. Or do you say, by God's grace, you say, oh, no, that, that is me. I haven't committed David's sin or that sin or the other sin. But no, I know my own sin before God. And, oh, but there's a Savior. You see, there's, there's living water. There's all sins, says Jesus, will be forgiven. You come to Him. If we deny our sin, John tells us, we're calling Him a liar and His word is not in us. Friends, this is what the scribes were doing and what many do today. Jesus claims He's Lord, He's Savior. He is the King. All have fallen short of the glory of God. He's come to save sinners. Take and drink freely from the living water. His family said He's crazy. Scribe says he's possessed by an evil one. Jesus says the kingdom has come. The Spirit's at work. And all sin will be forgiven to those who come to Him, bow before Him, see Him for who He truly is. And Jesus says, do not refuse Him. Oh, do not, do not, do not attribute all this work of salvation to evil or anything else, but see in this work your salvation. And no one who comes to him will ever be turned away. Like that fellow who had some alcohol on his breath and came into that Presbyterian church and nobody wanted to come near him. Now to Jesus, no one is turned away. And this is the Jesus who conquers sin, Satan, and death itself. This is the Jesus who's worthy friends of all our worship. This is the message we proclaim to ourselves and to everyone the Lord sovereignly brings upon our path in this lost and broken and guilt-filled and shame-ridden world. All given, says Jesus. You've heard of Rosaria Butterfield many years ago. 
a professor at Syracuse University, a convinced uh, lesbian, immersed in that lifestyle. You know her story, I think. Some of you do. She wrote an article against Christianity that appeared in her local newspaper, and a local Reformed uh, pastor named Ken wrote her a letter back asking questions about her beliefs and her worldview. I'll let her describe what happened next. With that letter, Pastor Ken initiated two years of bringing the church to me, a heathen. Oh, I'd seen my share of Bible verses, says Butterfield, on placards at gay pride marches. That Christians who mocked me on gay pride day were happy that I and everyone I loved were going to hell was clear as blue sky. That's not what Ken did. He did not mock. He engaged. So when his letter invited me to get together for dinner, I accepted. Something else happened. Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I became friends and they entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way I'd never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. And he thanked God for all things. Ken's God, said Rosaria Butterfield, was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. I continued reading the Bible, she says, all the while fighting the idea that it was inspired. That's what she says. But the Bible, the Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. It overflowed into my world. I fought against it with all my might. Then one Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover. And an hour later, sat in a pew at the Syracuse Reform Presbyterian Church. Conspicuous with my butch haircut. I reminded myself that I came to meet God and not fit in. And then she says, one, what was one ordinary day, I came to Jesus, open-handed and naked. In this war of worldviews, Ken was there, Floyd was there. The church that had been praying for me for years was there. And then she says this, Jesus triumphed, you see. Oh boy, that's how the kingdom of God comes. Sinners finding forgiveness in Jesus. Jesus says, do not turn away from him, but embrace him. All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they are. May we come today. May we find our place at the foot of Jesus. May his Holy Spirit convict us of our own need. And then, as we find that living water in Jesus, forgiveness full and free, oh, we'll find the, we'll find the time. We'll find the energy. We'll find the love. We'll find the motivation uh, to share that love and forgiveness with anyone whom God puts upon our path. May it be so for God's eternal glory and our eternal good. Let's pray uh, together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the truths of the gospel. We thank you for the scripture. We thank you that when Jesus speaks, he starts with amen. So that everything we read and everything we hear from the lips of Jesus, from the word of God, we know is true. 
Oh, so Lord, we pray that by your grace, uh, we would find ourselves at the cross this morning, not as those in despair, but as those who have seen our sin and who have gone running to that living water. Only Jesus has the words of life and forgiveness and cleansing because of what he's done for us in our place on the cross. At Calvary, in his resurrection on the third day, he's conquered sin and death and hell so that we ourselves here today might know that that wonderful cleansing from sin, that we might live forever with him in glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.